This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Our very first guest back in January 2014 was cartoonist Nate Powell. He's the co-author of the graphic novel trilogy, March, along with Georgia Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Iden. It's the story of Lewis's life as a civil rights warrior. He suffered a fractured skull on Bloody Sunday, March 7, 1965, when he and hundreds of freedom marchers were attacked by state troopers and local posse members outside Selma, Alabama. That and many other stories from Lewis's long and productive life are portrayed in March. For the first time, we present our interview with Powell in long form. Thanks for listening to Big Talk. Nate Powell is a Bloomingtonian, but he started off uh, somewhere quite far away, Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, I've lived here for 10 years. You're a cartoonist. You were a recording executive. You are a <laughs> musician. Well, I mean, you started a... That's true. A, an actual recording uh, a studio. What was that all about? Oh, uh, well, no, it was uh, an independent record label that oh, I started. Much right. like, uh, you know, out of Bloomington, uh, a good comparison would be Planet X Records or Houseplant yes. Records. Uh, but yeah, it's something I started uh, on and off with a friend or two uh, around 1994 and uh, mostly just put out either my own bands or my friend's bands. And uh, as we, you know, toured across the continent and across Europe and stuff over the next you know, decade or so, you know, uh, wo- we sort of wove ourselves more deeply into a, kind of a worldwide, you know, underground punk network. There was European touring going oh, on. You were a big shot in the <laughs> in the rock and roll world, where where there are all the, you know, where there are smashed hotel rooms and all that involved. Uh, there was a lot of sleeping in like wet dungeons and uh-huh. eating cold bowls of plain pasta. So if you can call that living large, then I was certainly living large. So was your idea to become a, a full-time musician? No. Uh, uh. In fact, I'd say that I guess I, I was really serious about what I do drawing comics mm. for a couple of years before I started making music with my friends. Uh, from the time I was 12, pretty much the only thing I wanted to do with my life, more or less, was draw comics, and that was certain. So things definitely got very serious as far as creating music and recording and touring with my friends. But in a lot of ways, you know, we sort of took a, a personal and creative stance against trying to make, make a career out of it. Or, uh, and really our band was sort of too weird and full of too many people with too many conflicting ideas uh, to ever, you know, be successful and and let me guess, there's no way you can categorize this music. Am I correct? Oh, that's true. That's, yeah. They, they, that's, what kind of music is it? And you would be there for ten minutes saying, "Hmm, right?" Or oh no, that's exactly right. Yeah. No, it's sort of a like a ten-piece punk hip hop Muppet Show band, uh, complete with costumes, occasionally puppets. A lot oh, of, that old category. Yeah, that old category. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a sub 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 genre. Where can any of us hear this music today? Uh, well, yeah, that main band I was in was called Sufi Nun Squad, mm-hmm. and uh, I have a, an archival site of my record label's releases, uh, which is Harlan Records, H-A-R-L-A-N, Harlan Records. 
www.blogspot.com. And then living here in Bloomington, I was in a band called Universe a few hmm. years ago. So music, but always the the love was pictures on a piece of paper. Certainly, and there's there's room for, for many loves. But yes, as far as the trajectory of my life, um, once, you know, I, I've always drawn and I started reading comics when I was three or four years old. And uh, yeah, by the time I was 12, I realized that these two things needed to be combined. Mm. And as soon as, as soon as that magical moment occurred, uh, that moment of revelation, yeah, there was no looking back. I noticed that uh, it said you um, uh, self-published your first comics at the age of 14. Oh, definitely. How did that go? Uh, very well. You see, uh, yeah, growing up in you know, central Arkansas, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, uh, there was very little access to a lot of, uh, basically a lot of a lot of underground music unless you happen to luck out and grow up in a town with a very vibrant underground scene. And in terms was of it comic, a college town or no? That's the, oh, it's Little Rock. I thought yeah. you were from Little Rock. Right, I am, and uh, there are a couple of colleges there, but yeah. it's very much not a college town, which actually sort of lends to an air of. Uh, you know, some people get out and never, you know, never come back. Uh, some people have the boomerang effect and really, you know, put down roots there and everything. But the people who are willing to work on creative endeavors in that town are so committed to each other and what they do that um, just a lot of art and music is able to intertwine and thrive amongst itself, amongst, you know, the, the creators in the town. So with comics, you know, like I had very little exposure to a lot of, you know, independent or alternative comics. Uh, so yeah, I started by, of course, drawing you know guns and boobs style superhero comics, as did many a thirteen year old. And because uh, that's what they're always thinking but about. Of course, so therefore, but of course. Uh, so my best friend and I had been drawing comics for a couple of years, and we decided to take the jump into printing the books ourselves. Uh, we realized that at my dad's office there was essentially an unused copy machine, and we decided we were just going to run off copies of our book until the thing broke down, which is exactly what happened. Wow. And we wound up with 100 copies of the first issue of our comic, and uh, you know we had exactly one comic book store in town at that time. And the owner, uh, who I'm still in touch with you know, to this day, has always been very supportive, but he was gracious enough to give us a little bit of shelf space. Huh. And uh, to our surprise... So were they stapled together? They or? were. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually didn't understand that you should print, you know, a comic or a magazine uh, on a larger piece of paper and then right. staple it in the middle. So, right. uh, yeah, the whole thing is sort of stapled together like a big, just a big mash of paper. Like a handout. And, yeah, and, yeah. We, and we actually cut out uh, a little strip of paper to serve as the spine. Uh, it was... You know, we didn't. We, it took a few issues to realize exactly how to do this without wasting a whole That's lot. That's do of it yourself. Effort. Oh, it's in, definitely do it is. yourself recording and do it yourself comic booking. Oh, definitely. You're Mister Do It Yourself. Uh, yeah, and I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, irrevocably uh, change the way that I look at life and the way I navigate the world. Um, and uh, yeah. A lot of steps along the way, whether it was drawing comics or publishing them or being in a band or running a record label, uh, a lot of it was just problem solving. It was mm -hmm. realizing you didn't know how to do something and figuring out the little steps along the way, the way 
uh, or making friends who all of a sudden had some insight and then realizing that, you know, a lot of this was simply pushing through the little steps mm-hmm. uh, without, you know, just getting stuck along the way. And making 10 million mistakes. And oh, yes. Of course. How much was the comic book? One copy. Oh, was, Do you recall? I think back then it was a dollar seventy-five because wow. the the interiors were free, but we wanted to have a full color cover <laughs> instead of just you know bootlegging this whole thing essentially for free. We paid a dollar for each cover, and so we made five cents profit off of each issue once the store took their cut. Wow! So with that nickel times a hundred copies, we had five dollars profit to split between us. But that's but, something. Oh, indeed. You mean you sold all? Actually, yeah, we uh, we had we were doing a series, so our plan was to stick to our schedule. Uh, even as high schoolers and everything, we were going to do a you know thirty two page issue every two months, and we stuck to that schedule wow. actually through the first five issues of the comic we did. And to our surprise, each issue had sold out by the time the next issue arrived on the stand. So, I know some high schoolers for whom. The great accomplishment is getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, oh, for but, sure. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is a little bit beyond that. There, I did a lot of self-published comics. Uh, also, uh, throughout the 90s, there was a wonderful sort of scam happening with Kinko's involving a variety of card-reading machines and card counters. And oh, so yeah. Tens of thousands of uh, free photocopies may or may not have been produced during that oh. decade, thanks to Uh-oh. the machinery at Kinko's. But as my band started touring across the U.S., uh, for the most part, I would just sell my comics and zines at these shows. Huh. And uh, I also was a, I would write columns and do illustrations for sort of a punk, a yeah. punk magazine called Heart Attack out yeah. of uh, California. And uh, through those two things together, uh, finally I hit a point where I was spending so much time photocopying and assembling these books where I was, I was printing maybe 1,400 of each issue, uh, but I didn't have any money saved up or any kind of capital to take a step to start you know, going to a real printer and mm-hmm. thinking of it in that way. So I went to art school in New York City in the late 90s and applied School for of Visual Arts. School of Visual Arts. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I got a grant uh, for a self-publishing project for seniors uh, at my school, and I used that money to offset print my first my first comic, and then the first one that would take the next step, so that yeah. I could actually have it distributed by Comic Book, you know, mm. by Diamond Distribution and other other companies, and wow. so that sort of opened the door uh, instead of just in people's moldy basements. Etc. That sort of opened the door to actually getting my books in comic book shops. So that yeah. started in 2000. And from then, there have been awards and nominations for awards. There have been all sorts of different things. Uh, there was a DOA. I've got the list right here. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, the... the Playground Messiah. I just love that title. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Walkie Talkie. Mm-hmm. Now, Swallow Me Whole right. and Any Empire, those are big titles. And they have sold. Yes, and, and uh, of course, there's how I discovered you through March Book One. Right. This is fabulous. Oh, uh, this is tremendous. I got a copy of it right over here. Also, there was The Silence of Our Friends. Right. This uh, uh, strikes me. Uh, there's race relations involved here. How? Why you? You are the whitest looking man on the face of the earth, or one of. 
It may be true. It may be true. But yet here you are talking about race relations with a sensitivity that's amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, especially with the visibility that March has had, uh, one of the questions that sort of boggles my mind that interviewers will ask sometimes is uh, because of these two more recent books that I drew uh, written by different authors, March yes. and Silence of Our Friends, they'll ask me why I am interested in civil rights or in human rights. And uh, my usual answer is that, well, I'm a person, so naturally I'm interested in human rights. But mm -hmm. these two book projects sort of fell into each other one after another. Uh -huh. They're, each of them is, uh, Silence of Our Friends is essentially an autobiographical tale of this one guy's life as a kid growing up in a white middle class family in the suburbs around Houston in 67, 68. And, uh, and then March is the, the life story of civil rights legend and Congressman John Lewis. In general, there, there's definitely been a strong political and social lean to my comics since I've been an adult. But I'd say it wasn't until uh, maybe five or six years ago that I felt I had really had enough time and distance and also enough perspective after leaving the South and seeing just how, in a lot of ways, how much more racist and backwards the Northern Midwest is than a lot of places that I grew up in the, in the traditional South, but also to understand a lot of different dimensions of American racism. I finally felt like a lot of the anxiety uh, in terms of wanting to, wanting to have something to say about race, power, and identity in our society, uh, a lot of that anxiety fell away. And uh, I did some short stories that I wrote Andrew, but uh, yeah, the authors of The Silence of Our Friends approached me about turning their, you know, bringing their story to life. And actually the, uh, my work on that book got a nice big feature in the New York Times. Uh -huh. And John Lewis and his co-writer Andrew had already secured a publishing deal with my publisher, Top Shelf, for the book, March, but with no artist. Uh, but they saw this New York Times review of The Silence of Our Friends and were like, oh, well, we should, we should see what's going on with, uh, with this guy. Uh, but I'd already been speaking with my, my publisher, who strongly suggested that I try out personally for the job. Wow. Uh, so it was just a, a long process, but we happened to find each other at the, at the same time. Now, you know, I uh, discovered the uh, graphic novel a little late in the mm -hmm. game, but, but I got to it. The first one I read was uh, the uh, biography of uh, J. Edgar Hoover by oh, wow. Geary. Mm -hmm. And I was just blown away. And I said, man... This is the future. This is the future of education. What do you think of that? Actually, until March started, uh, until the book was done, but hadn't been released yet, um, it wasn't until I started doing a lot of touring and publicity and a lot of talks, particularly with educators, librarians, and going to the big American Library Association conference in Chicago. Um, it wasn't until that that I really considered a lot of the implications, a lot of the potential for, uh, for March or for other books of mine to be featured yet as a part of school curriculum, as a mm. part of education. Uh, my book, Swallow Me Whole, I know has, it's been in several you know, college courses and I think a high school course or two. But for the most part, it's just something, I, 
you know, I, I'm drawing seven days a week. I'm just spend all day in my house, keep on, you know, I'm raising a daughter. I always forget to kind of look around and see what is actually happening. So mm. it's been very, very exciting. Just, I think that teachers and librarians have actually been the most enthusiastic and most passionate people uh, when discussing March with John and Andrew and I, uh, you know, face to face. And I now understand exactly what you're talking about and exactly what the educational world is talking about in terms of the massive application, especially growing up as a, you know, at the tail end of Generation X as a, as a Southerner with baby boomer, Southerner parents, Mm -hmm. there is a lot about the basic working understanding of the civil rights movement and its context in 20th century American history. There's a lot that I take and continue, you know, that I took and continue to take for granted. And it wasn't until working on this book that I, I realized exactly how much of a gulf there was between me being a 35-year-old and 15, 20, even 25-year-olds. Yeah, I, I, now I understand, and I'm certainly humbled. About right. It. Now, we should uh, mention that Andrew's Andrew Aiden? Aiden. Aiden. Mm-hmm. And he was the, uh, I believe, was the publicity man for John Lewis. Yeah, he actually, he's still a staffer, actually. Yeah. yeah. He's, uh, I think he's the head of telecommunications, and yes. he does a lot of just digital stuff and publicity stuff. Yes. And he wrote the words. They, they worked up the story together and structured it that way. I think that Andrew did more of the side of converting it into a comic book script that I could work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once I got that um, script, I proceeded to kind of throw it out the window. There are a lot of different ways to write a comic book script. Yeah. And when I write and draw my own books, I don't even use a script, uh, which is fine because it's just me sitting in my room. When I'm working on my own books, I'll have sort of the big idea that I want the book to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have a series of events, little vignettes that I spend a couple of years sort of rearranging and wow. building relationships between these characters and events. And then it's a, a longer process of waiting for characters to emerge from inside you that you actually care about. But I actually sort of, I put my dialogue, you know, I know how a story is going to be paced. I know how long it's going to be. But in terms of dialogue and actually what's featured in terms of text, that really comes out while I'm penciling each of the each of the pages or each of the scenes. So you're drawing the picture, and then as the picture is coming out, you say, he should say this or she right. should say that. Yeah. And I know what the scene is about. I know what the book right. is about. So a lot of it, you know, I already have in my head. But my own stories are much more fluid and intuitive. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Andrew's... Andrew and John's script that they delivered to me was a, a classic finished comic book movie script that was you know divided into you know scenes, pages, panels. Right. Uh, and uh, originally, March was this is just book one of three. Yes. So originally it was a single graphic novel that was about 160 pages long, and within a couple of pages I realized that we were dealing with about a 500 page book. Uh, just based on wanting to take the reins with my own narrative sensibilities and uh, sort of pulling out different focuses throughout the narrative. A lot of it having to do with, you know, John Lewis's internal landscape as a Mm. person, but also as a character within this book. A lot of it had to do with looking in between the lines of the script and seeing what wasn't evident uh, in the in the text and trying to draw that out. Uh, the classic example I use is 
in book two, a lot of it covers the freedom rides across the South. So when John Lewis and the other freedom riders are pulling into the Montgomery, Alabama Greyhound station, something appears very wrong because there are only two or three journalists standing around and it's very still and very quiet. They know things are about to go horribly wrong, but they don't know when, how, from what direction, who these people will be. And so there might be this five-second window where everyone's quiet, everything's still, and then everything just goes to hell. But from my narrative standpoint, that is the scene, is that Mm -hmm. five seconds. So it's a matter of turning that from one panel into two and a half pages. Hmm. Uh, A lot of the the fun and the power of comic storytelling is this control of time, the way that that time flows both for you as a creator onto the page, but the way that the reader in turn controls time as they're processing the book. What did they think about you sort of playing with their plan? Well, uh, I, I hope that... I know that Andrew was aware of my books already. Yeah. Um, so my hope is that when the three of us signed up to do the book together, they knew that I was going to take certain narrative liberties ah. or, you know, sort of use, use my narrative strengths or narrative interests in the service of the story. I think they might have even been counting on that to a degree, ah. just as I was counting on uh, Congressman Lewis being able to so powerfully and eloquently, you know, remember these details with mm. incredible clarity. So there were no phone calls. You can't <laughs> no. do that. Not one. Not one. Now you've met both of the gentlemen face to face. Oh, we we've hung out pr- about every weekend for five or six months straight. Wow. Yeah, we're always going to different cities and doing stuff and selling the it's been book. Been a whirlwind. Yes. And that book is selling. It's doing well. It's true. Somehow you wound up in this town. Yes, indeed. How did that happen? I'd been living. Up and down the East Coast and in some other towns through the Midwest. I noticed that. Were you on the run from the law or what was happening? I can't talk about that. Uh, No, a lot of it just had to do with touring and meeting Uh friends and everything. Uh, But I had kind of gotten East Coasted out Mm -hmm. and uh, didn't want to move all the way back to my hometown just yet. Um, But I knew a lot of wonderful people and bands here in Bloomington. My best friend had just moved here a few months prior. Mm. And uh, I knew that it was... a relatively inexpensive place. It was cozy, friendly, a safe and civil city. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of it, you know, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and I was like, okay, well, I'll move here for a while. And uh, here I am. I just, I love this town a lot. And, you know, I met a wonderful person. We got married. I have a, have a, have a family here in, uh, in Bloomington. So that's the greatest. No plans to go anywhere. We're with Nate Powell. There's another aspect to Nate Powell's life. It has to do with caregiving. My other career, I guess you could say, uh, was from 99 to 2009. My full-time job was uh, providing care and support for adults with developmental disabilities and dual diagnosis. And a lot of that is in a variety of contexts. But uh, my older brother, Peyton, has autism and some other disabilities. (laughs) And uh, growing up, I mean, really... It's, it's amazing that even through the late 1980s, a lot of people in the medical community didn't really have an awareness of what autism was. Right. Uh, truly, the movie Rain Man blew the door open in terms of uh, public awareness that, that this is a way that people live that actually exists. Mm-hmm. So 
It took a while until one of his friends from high school suggested that I try working with folks with disabilities of different kinds. And it just, you know, it was like magic. I finally felt like uh, I had something that I could do with the unique experience of my life growing up in my family. I was good at it. I cared about it. And it was just something that I you know, never looked back from until I had the one chance to quit my job to try to go full time as a cartoonist. One of the books has to do with some of this work. That would be Swallow Me Whole. Right, uh, and I, I tried to avoid any direct influence from my job for ethical reasons. But yeah, it involves yeah. these two teenage step-siblings growing up in the South and their changing relationship with each other as they're starting to show symptoms of different emerging mental disorders. Swallow Me Whole was a big, well-selling title. Any Empire... And there are some others with names that I love, like uh, DOA and uh, especially the Playground Messiah. Uh, there was Walkie Talkie and, of course, The Silence of Our Friends. Then there's March, which is on bookshelves right now. And this is big stuff. And it uh, has to do with the, the entire life, practically, uh, I would say, of Congressman John Lewis of Georgia. That's right. Who uh, was famous as a young man for getting his skull cracked. You bet. In Selma, Alabama, a very big uh, Sunday afternoon in American history. Like a bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday, indeed. And uh, you tell the story of Lewis getting into the civil rights activism uh, world. For sure. And, you know, I like to think that I'm helping him tell his story with more clarity and power. But yeah, the uh, yeah, Congressman Lewis and the co-writer Andrew Iden, all three of us have worked together very diligently in terms of building this up into a narrative that not only is resonant and powerful and communicates what it needs to, but I sort of step in, since we're coming from the same page politically and socially anyway, I sort of leave the driving to them and uh, I try to spend most of my time worrying about the book's merits as a comic book, as right. a part of the form. There are two of the most genuine, and wonderful people I've ever met. And the plan is to keep it active, keep it relevant, and continue to let it find its way into every you know library and school in America. And our publisher even has a multi-level teacher's guide. Hmm. But it even uh, there are people as young as fifth grade. Um, teachers have approached us where they, they're able to use the book when discussing racism and American history with their kids. And uh, a lot of college courses also teach it. So um, I tried not to think about the potential readership while doing the book. And then I realized that I was sort of taking for granted my own grasp of history, especially as a Southerner with baby boomer parents. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started considering the potential, the fact that this is something that's going to be a part of curriculum. And uh, I feel that book two reflects that a little bit more. But it's also much, much darker and more violent. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see exactly how books two and three find their way into schools and libraries. Nate Powell, the cartoonist, the graphic novelist, plus, plus many things. Uh, and who knows what the heck you're going to be into in the future. I, I'm sure there's at least maybe half dozen by the time you uh, leave this mortal coil, a half dozen new careers for you. What do you think? I'd like to remain open to that. You know. <laughs> Nate, thanks for being with us. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. 